Well, good evening. Good evening. It's great to see you all here. I hope you've had a great day. A special welcome to all of our friends, the supporters and grads who've come along to join us tonight. We do hope that this night, just being with us, is a great blessing to you because your presence with us is an enormous blessing to us. Not just your presence here tonight, but your prayers for us, your financial support of the ministry, it is all a great blessing. So uh, we hope that this is in some small way a blessing from God into your own heart and walk with the Lord Jesus. It's great to have you here with us. Well, all of us who are followers of the Lord Jesus know the struggle. We all know the struggle for holiness. That struggle with sin. That struggle for maturity. We have a desire, don't we? A real longing to be holy. But sometimes the situation feels hopeless. I want to be more like Jesus in my character, in my convictions, in my priorities, in my passions. But sometimes it just feels like my life is more characterised by defeat and powerlessness and repeated failure. I hope I'm not just projecting here. <laughs> do, do you have that experience? Is that your experience as a Christian? You feel like that sometimes? Well, if you identify with my struggle there, then tonight God wants you to be encouraged. God wants you to take confidence and encouragement to be empowered and take joy in his present enabling of you to live for him. I should say also that he might also have a word of rebuke for you tonight. He may have a word for you of challenge or discipline. But certainly, he has a word of comfort and encouragement and hope for you. Because tonight we're looking from God's word at the powerful, transforming presence of his Holy Spirit in your life. And God's presence is intimately tied up with holiness. Because one of the primary things that God reveals about himself in his word is that he is the Holy One. And so when the Holy One makes himself present to you, see, holiness and presence are like hand in glove. They come together. And we've seen this week, the presence of God is such an important theme in the Bible that it is an appropriate way of actually telling the whole Bible's story of what God's doing in the world, from Eden all the way through to eternity. And you can see it there on your outline. I hope you've got that there. You might like to have a quick look at that. The whole of God's history in between Eden and eternity is really a movement towards recovering what was tragically lost at Eden, namely life lived in the very presence of God. That is what God is recovering for us life in his presence. So what we're going to do tonight is have just a, a really skim overview of the story of God's presence. So much is this going to be a skim overview that I'm just going to completely, completely just skip part A. So much of a skim. Um, that is God's presence with his old covenant people. Uh, if you're here at Ancon, then you're going to get to look at this section in more detail in tomorrow's review group. I'll just say this, this is all I'll say, the presence of God dwelling with his old covenant people 
the nation of Israel, and he dwelt with them at the tabernacle and the temple, the presence of God with his old covenant people was the great blessing of the covenant established through Moses at Mount Sinai. The great climax of the book of Exodus is the construction of the tabernacle where God was going to dwell with his people. That's the climax, Exodus 20, uh, 35 to 40. And the climax of the climax is the very end of Exodus 40. And what happens there? God comes, the glorious cloud of his presence, and he fills the tabernacle. The great blessing of the covenant established at Mount Sinai is the presence of God with his people. But if you know the history of Old Testament Israel, they continually broke that covenant. They persisted in sinful ways, they refused to repent, they had hearts of stone, they were hard towards God, the very God who chosen to dwell amongst them. So God excluded them from his presence. Just like back in the Garden of Eden where they were exiled from the garden, again they go into exile this time from the promised land. But remember, we saw right back on Monday morning, God's heart, God's heart is, is to recover his purposes for creation that his creatures might live in his presence, that they would enjoy life in his presence. And so I'm now at the middle of page 31. You might like to join me there. God promises, therefore, to deal with their heart problem because this was the fundamental problem, the problem of their sin, their hard hearts. Let me read to you there from... Jeremiah 31. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So God promises a new covenant there in verse 31. Now what's new about it? Well, what's utterly new here is that God is going to get rid of the sin problem. God is going to write his law on their hearts in such a way that they will be obedient to him in this new covenant. They won't break it like they did the old. And the prophet Ezekiel looks forward to the same reality and he introduces us to the role of the Spirit in this. So Ezekiel 36 from verse 26. A new heart I will give you, says the Lord. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. See, at the heart of the new covenant is a new heart. God's own spirit within them is going to bring about obedience. God's not just going to be with his people, God's going to be in his people by his spirit, and that's what will empower their obedience. So that brings us to part B, page 40. God establishes the new covenant through the Lord Jesus and the spirit. 
I said we were skimming through it, but it's all there for you to take away and use as a, a resource. Page 40. What page is it? 32. What? Part B, wherever that is. 32. I don't know what I was looking at. I'm now quite worried about what I was looking at. Anyway, doesn't matter. Part B, you know where we are. Now you do anyway. What's the great pinnacle in the Bible of God's presence? It's Jesus himself. Jesus is the great pinnacle of God's presence because Jesus is revealed in the Bible as Emmanuel, God with us. John's Gospel describes Jesus' prehistory, if you like, as the Word who is with God, the Word who was God, and who became flesh and literally tabernacled, tented, with all the overtones of the tabernacle from Exodus among us. Jesus is God incarnate, enfleshed, who walked in our very midst. But what God was doing in Christ, particularly in his death, was establishing this new covenant that had been promised. So Luke 22, you can read it there at the Last Supper, Jesus talks about his own imminent death as the means by which the promised new covenant of Jeremiah 31 will be established. It's going to be established in his death, through his blood. So that brings us to part C. I have no idea what page that's on, but it doesn't matter. God's presence in the new covenant people of God. No longer is God with his people, now God is going to be in his people. We don't have a temple in our midst anymore. We have a new dwelling place for God, though. It's us. It's really easy, I think, to skip over just how utterly remarkable it is what God tells us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Paul writes, Or do you not know, speaking to Christians, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So let's just think about that for a moment. So the God of the universe, who symbolised his magnificence, by the glory-filled cloud of his presence, which so filled the tabernacle and the temple that you couldn't even get in there because it was so magnificent, that God has taken up residence in you. So the God who shook Mount Sinai when he came down in that cloud to speak to the Israelites, he's taken up residence in you. The God who was so holy that at the very heart of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, a section where only the high priest out of the whole nation, only one guy, the high priest, could enter and only he could do it once a year. And only then after he'd gone through this whole uh, this ritual of purification and atonement making, only then could he enter in. The God who dwelt in the Holy of Holies has taken up residence in you. Now, doesn't that just sort of freak you out a bit? And you sort of go, oh, I didn't quite... Um, okay. I, 
What am I meant to do with this astounding information? Well, Paul there in 1 Corinthians 6 is very clear. Since you belong to him as his temple, your body is this temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, very simple, glorify him in your body by being holy. See, do you see how utterly incongruous it is when as Christians, as temples of the Holy Spirit, we choose to engage in sin? It just doesn't fit with who we are. Each of us are a temple of God's Holy Spirit. And to not glorify him in your body is to live completely at odds with your identity. Now, we're going to explore this more as we go on tonight, but at this point, I just want you to grasp that astounding reality that as one who is in Christ, as a Christian, you are a temple of his Holy Spirit. Not that you can be a temple of his Holy Spirit. Not that sometimes you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, but sitting right here tonight, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God's taken up residence in you. This is who you are. And it's actually not just individual Christians, but we together are his temple. And I'm quoting here from the BEV, the Boxer's English Version. Do you not know that yous are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in yous? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is holy and yous are that temple. Together, as Christians, corporately, we are the precious, holy temple of the Spirit. So you can see from the diagram there, the glorious end point of the story of God's presence from the Exodus, through the tabernacle, through the temple, the end point is the local Christian church and the individual Christian believer. Now, I mentioned before that there's this vital connection, right, between God's presence and his holiness. They fit together like hand and glove. And you see it here in the New Covenant, because the Spirit is God's presence who holifies, who makes you holy, declares you to be holy. And it functions in two ways. The Spirit is both that which sets you apart, that marks you out as holy, because that's all holiness means in some ways, just to be set apart for a special purpose. And the fact that you've got the Spirit is a mark that you've been set apart. But also the Spirit transforms us. Have a look there from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's really the climax of a chapter where Paul's been speaking about the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us, with unveiled faces seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory into another. This comes from the Lord, the Spirit. So God doesn't just mark us out as belonging to him by giving us his Spirit, but he actually transforms us into his very own image, which is the likeness of Jesus through this Spirit. I was trying to think of an example. It's like this. Actually, it's probably a poor example, but I'll do it anyway. God doesn't really fit into the Sydney property market scene. 
because he's not into buying and selling property. See, God is an owner-builder who's into renovation rescues. He doesn't just buy a place, in this case you, and then rent it out. He buys it at great personal cost, the death of his own son, and he moves in, in the person of the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't just live in you. Once he's moved in, he starts transforming this house that is now his into a permanent home for himself that retains its individual character, but is so utterly transformed that it complies and fits perfectly to the design standards that he has set, namely Christ himself. And over the years, as you watch God's Spirit at work, you see this transformation into greater and greater glory as it takes on more and more the distinctive design, the trademark signs of Jesus himself. You're you, like Christ, by the power of the Spirit, who lives in you. That's what God's doing, if by faith you're in Christ. And it's an amazing, wonderful truth. And I hope it gives you some, some joy and some reassurance that God is at work. But what I want to do now is probe a bit deeper into what this means for our holiness. So section two, from with to in, the powerful presence of the indwelling Spirit of God. And we're going to just settle down for a little bit, camp out a little bit at, in Romans chapter 8. And I've broken Romans 8, just the section there, into four little subsections. And I'm just going to give you some headings, which you might like to scribble down, um, just to, as we focus in on God's Spirit within us and the, the effect of that presence. So firstly, verses 1 to 4. Spirit, not flesh, is my little subheading. See, there's a... Paul describes in verse 4 there, he describes what a, who a Christian is. And one of the ways he describes a Christian in verse 4, you'll see there, is a Christian is one who walks not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, to walk is a lovely metaphor for living your life. You walk through life. And Christians walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, what's this distinction between flesh and spirit? To our ears, flesh and spirit sounds like, well, flesh physical versus spirit spiritual. It sounds like physical versus spiritual, but that's not what Paul means. When he says flesh, he means a life lived under the direction and power of sin and sinful desires. That's walking according to the flesh. Life lived according to the direction and power of sin and sinful desires. And he contrasts that with life lived under the direction and power of the Spirit. So Paul's saying, Christians walk not directed by and not under the power of sinful desires, they walk directed and empowered by the Spirit. So then he goes on, verses 5 to 8. You can only be, he says, on one side of the street. He points out the complete antithesis between life in the flesh and life in the spirit. You can't be in both camps at once. You're in one or the other. You're on one side of the street or the other. 
And just in case you can't, you're not convinced of that, Paul points out why this has to be true. He says there, if you're walking according to the flesh, he says, then you're hostile to God. You don't want to submit to his law. And he says, actually, you can't if you're walking in the flesh. And so you can't please God. The spirit and the flesh are completely at odds with each other. They're not neighbours. They're opposite sides of the street. And then Paul makes his point in verse 9. You're on the spirit side of the street. Verse 9. But you, speaking to Christians, are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit since the Spirit of God dwells in you. I mean, Paul can't say it much plainer than that, can he? You are not in the flesh. How does he know that we're not in the flesh? Well, he says, because the Spirit's in you. And since the Spirit is in you, you are in the Spirit. I, I think what he's, what he's saying there is this. The Spirit lives in all and only those who live on his side of the street. So everyone who's on the spirit side of the street, they have the spirit. And anyone who has the spirit is living on that side of the street. So he says, the spirit's in you, so therefore you're in the spirit. You're on that side of the street. Therefore you can't be in the flesh because they are opposite sides. They're not neighbours. You can't be in both. Now, this is one of those truths that we so easily forget. Our struggle with sin is always with us until Christ returns or he takes us to glory. And that can actually deceive us at times. So we have to know who are we, or, or maybe, using this analogy, where are we? What side of the street are we on? Are we in the flesh or are we in the spirit? Paul says, no, well, the Spirit's in you, therefore you're in the Spirit and you're not in the flesh. Well, how can I be sure then that I've got the Spirit, if that's the critical point? Well, do you trust Jesus as your Lord and Saviour? Yeah, I trust Jesus as my Lord and Saviour. I mean, I've, I, I still don't live there. Do you trust Him as your Lord and Saviour? Do you want to live for him? Oh, I want to live for him, but I keep stuffing up and then temptate. Do you want to live for him? Well, yes, I want to live for him. You're really pushy with your questions here. <laughs> Do you come to God in thanks and praise and need? Do you cry out, Father? Do you do that? Well, not as much as I should. I mean, I really should do it a lot more. But do you do it, right? Is it? Well, yeah, I do. Well, then you have the Spirit of God in you because it's His Spirit that testifies with our spirit that we are children of God when we cry out, Abba, Father. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. You don't want to please God except that God's Spirit is... The Spirit is in you. So you're in the Spirit and you're not in the flesh. Well, Paul then concludes with verses 12 to 13. How should this affect our walk? Basically, he says, so stop paying rent to the other side of the street. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. Because you're in the Spirit, you owe the flesh nothing. You are not a debtor to the flesh. Do not keep paying rent to the flesh by engaging and indulging in sin. You owe the flesh nothing. Actually, instead, what you're to do is your, he says there, to put to death the deeds of the body. That is, he means there, the misdeeds of the body, if you like. Put to death all the things that we do when prompted by sin or tempted by sin. Put those things to death. Kill them off. That's what practical holiness looks like. That's what having God in you empowers and prompts you to do, to put to death the deeds of the body in the power of the Spirit. Now, put to death is really, really strong language. Uh, while It was bizarre. While I was writing this very talk, I was, I was sitting there at my computer last week when, poof, this thing, I don't know where it came from, but this weird-looking insect about that long, it must, like, it was about that long, it just fell out of somewhere and landed right there next to me. Now, I don't know what this insect was. Like, I, I looked at it, I thought, I've never, ever in my life seen anything like you. It really, in all seriousness, looked like the ugly offspring of a cockroach that had mated with a grasshopper. I kid you not. It was... I don't know what it was. Even as I'm talking to you, I'm still getting the heebie-jeebies thinking about it. Ugh. And to tell you the truth, I was completely uninterested in, oh, look at that, and play around with that. I, I, I reached down, I looked at I watched it carefully. I reached down, I picked up an old magazine that was sort of sitting in the bin. I picked it up, rolled it up, and I actually said out loud, <laughs> I actually said, I don't know what you are, but you are going to die. And I smacked it. And uh, maybe too hard, since its guts actually went all over my computer. It was only three days later I discovered someone just on the drive side. Like just, anyway. <laughs> I showed extreme prejudice. I put it to death. And those who are in the spirit, that's what we're to do to sin in our life. No mercy to sin in our own life. No playing around with it. No, you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, since God's Spirit lives in you. So don't walk according to the flesh. You are not a debtor to the flesh. Kill off sin in your life by the Spirit. Terminate it with extreme prejudice. The misdeeds of the body in your life. Okay, you say, so how do I do that? How do I do that? Well... How do I terminate with extreme prejudice into my life? I don't actually think it's terribly complicated. So here's, here's my little thing of terminating sin 
with extreme spiritual prejudice. With ESP, I notice. I was thinking I could, we could start a little code word, you know, say, how are you going in your Christian walk? Oh, well, you know, I'm really, I'm really trying to get some of that sin with the ESP, you know, the extreme spiritual prejudice stuff. And then I realised extreme spiritual prejudice sounds bad. <laughs> oh, yeah, we in the EU, we're really into extreme spiritual prejudice. <laughs> you know, we're, we're very prejudiced against other people who don't agree with us about the Spirit. So I just thought, actually, it's really bad. But anyway, <laughs> we'll never speak of it again. Anyway, it's very simple, I think. How do you kill off the deeds of the body in your life by the Spirit? I think the answer is that what the Spirit does is the Spirit highlights sin, which Steve's going to talk about tomorrow morning, and he prompts us and empowers us to repent. Repentance is the way we kill off sin in ourselves with extreme prejudice. Now, repentance is a lot more than just confession. Of wrongdoing, confession of sin. And it's much more actually than just seeking forgiveness for sin. Repentance is, a, is full on, right? It is like taking that magazine and giving it a real smack. Repentance is serious work. And there's uh, five R's, if you like, to repentance. Firstly, let's whiz through these. Recognize. If you're going to repent, then you need to recognize the sins that really are sins. Sometimes I think people try to repent of things that aren't sin. They just have this vague feeling of, well, it can be anything. Sometimes it can be a vague feeling of disconnection from God or a vague feeling of just unworthiness. Now, I mean, those feelings may be right. But in themselves, they may not be sin. They may not be sin. Maybe there's sin that's prompting it, but... In themselves, they're not sins. So you've got to identify what are the real sins to repent of here and then recognise those things as sin. <laughs> Don't treat them lightly. Don't play around with them. Recognise sin for what it is. Secondly, renounce. Renounce that sinful behaviour or attitude or inclination as a feature of your walk. No longer will you tolerate that in your walk by the power of the Spirit. Renounce it as part of your walk. Thirdly, Resolve. Resolve not to do it anymore. Resolving is serious, right? Resolving requires a plan of attack. How are you going to avoid this? When are the particular moments that it's a problem? What strategies could you use to try to avoid falling into this behaviour or attitude again? Can you use the means that God's provided to help you in holiness, namely the Bible, prayer and the encouragement of fellow Christians? How can you use those means that God's provided to help you walk in holiness here and to resolve not to do it again? Fourthly, very important, receive forgiveness. Receive God's grace. See, repentance is a response to grace. Repentance doesn't earn you God's favour. Repentance is the God-glorifying response to his grace to us in Jesus. So don't separate your repentance from receiving that very grace. God has dealt with the penalty and power and shame of your sins and the guilt that goes with it all at the cross. Receive the forgiveness. I don't care what the sin is. I don't care what you've done. I don't care that nobody else knows. The Lord knows. And Jesus died for it. And he wants to lavish grace and forgiveness on you. Receive it. Receive it. Finally, restitution. 
If possible, make restitution for whatever damage or wrong has been done through your sin. So to kill off sin in your life, repentance is what's required, and it's the Spirit that's going to prompt and empower that repentance. Now, you've got to remember again that this work of growing in godliness, it's, it's not all about you, right? Don't fall into it's all me-ism. All right, I've got to repent, I've got to do this, do this. No, no, it's always, as you can see there, it is both God's work and ours. It's the clear teaching of the New Testament through passages like you've got there, 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 Corinthians 3. It's the Spirit who is at work in us to effect this transformation, even though the Spirit's work is indistinguishable, from my perspective, from my own work. This has come up a few times in some of the conversations I've had with people this week. All I know is that it's the Spirit that empowers my work. It's with the unseen and largely often unfelt energy of the Spirit that I pedal my way towards holiness. I'm going to give you a really dodgy example of this. I'm a big Tour de France fan. Starting on Saturday night. Bleary eyes for three weeks. Woo! It's awesome. I I love the Tour de France. Now... It is an absolutely ridiculous event, right? It is just stupid. 3,000 kilometres in 20 days of cycling or 19 days of cycling. Let's race. And then they win by, you know, a matter of seconds. Like, it is absolutely ridiculous, which I think is probably why I like it. It's just so stupid. (laughs) And, frankly, how many of them are taking drugs? (laughs) I reckon probably all of them. Anyway... Think about steroids, though, for a moment. Uh, As you see, I've used many steroids in my life just by my sheer massive size. When you take steroids, the effect is apparent. But for the person who's taking them, they can't feel the steroid effect as separate to their own effort. It's a work in and through you, in and through your own work. So it is with growth in holiness. When we put to death the deeds of the body, it's with this unseen and often largely unfelt but powerful energy of the spirit that empowers me to pedal on my way to holiness. Okay, so let's try and tie some of these threads together. In light of all that I've looked at, how should I think about sin in my life as a Christian? Can you see the gingerbread men there? You got the gingerbread men? Five gingerbread men. Okay, now some of you have seen these before. It's just a chance for you to think more deeply about it once again. And... uh, Which gingerbread person is telling the real story about sin for a Christian? So you've got to assume that the shaded areas represent sin and the white area represents no sin. So then which gingerbread person best captures the reality of sin in the life of a Christian? So just to help you explain, because I know the pictures tell a thousand words, but sometimes you need the thousand words to understand the picture. Uh, Gingerbread person number one on the left, 
He's all dark, he, she, all dark, except for a few white patches. Ginger robe person number two, a 50-50 split. So there's like there's two forces at work within the Christian, the sin side and what you might call the spirit side or the holy side, and they're battling it out within us. Gingerbread person three, this sort of view is that as Christians, we're a bit of a blank slate. We can go either way. We can go to sin or to holiness. It purely depends on which external voice or power we sort of listen to, whether to, the, to God or to the devil, the world. Gingerbread person four is just a weird Christian homeboy. <laughs> and gingerbread person five, the Christian is all white, no sin anywhere. So which gingerbread person is telling the real story about the place that sin has in the life of the Christian? Talk with the person next to you and have a reason. Okay, who voted for, now, we're all friends, there's no shame, and frankly, you're all so smart, you could probably, you know, mount a pretty good argument for anything you like to choose, so, uh, yeah, we're not worried here. Who just, who says, gingerbread person one? Be bold, be bold. Who says gingerbread person two? Who says number three? Who says number four? Who says number five? Great. Excellent. Okay, let's run through this. I think the best answer is uh, the Christian homeboy. Okay, let me explain that. Uh, problem, with, problem with gingerbread persons number one and two, problem with one and two is they both underplay the radical transformation that God accomplishes in you when you're made a new creation through faith in Christ and when God comes to dwell in you by his spirit. I think the thing is, the reason we, we look at those is because we do feel at times overwhelmed by the extent of our sin. We feel sometimes like number one. Or we feel a tension between walking according to the flesh or walking accord, according to the spirit. So sort of, sort of like number two. But the truth that Paul emphasised in 2 Corinthians 3 is that as Christians, you're not in the flesh, you are in the spirit, since the spirit dwells in you. So similarly, number three, I think, leaves us too aimless, too unowned, whereas we are God's temple. We belong to him. But the Bible's also clear that sin will be a continuing experience for Christians until Jesus returns. So gingerbread five is wrong for the present, but the great glorious truth is that gingerbread five is where God is taking you and how fantastic will it be when that is your, your experience of a sin-free life. <laughs> That's just fantastic. That's where God is taking us. Praise him for that. The best, though, I think, for our present experience is number four. Sin is not who we are. Sin, is, sin are the works of our former way of life, the old self that have to be cast off 
like the bad clothes that I should have stopped wearing years ago. Um, I'm quite a trendy person myself, so I just learned this from others. Not at all, actually. I mean, that's just a bald-faced lie. Um, when I got married, my wife said to me, I love you, Rowan, but, I, but, but you just must throw out those seven identical Beach Mission T-shirts <laughs> because I will not let you wear them anywhere. Right? So being a Christian means that you've got to get rid of the old clothes. You've got to throw off that sin that is a mark of your former way of life. If you like, sin is bling. Sin is bling in your life. You know, you know what I mean, right? I'm being hip. No? I'm not. Maybe I'm being... Eh, I don't know what I'm being. Anyway, that is... Sin is bling that doesn't fit on the spirit side of the street. So you go, oh, come on, all the analogies are coming together now. This is. So in terms of your identity, you are not in the flesh. Sin is not your master anymore. Now the spirit's in you. You're in the spirit. You're not in the flesh. You're to Put off, put to death, cast off those old ways, the misdeeds of the body, and walk in accordance with who God has created you to be in Christ by the Spirit. And so if you look at the top of the next page, Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 16, he says, literally, walk by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Actually, literally, it's much stronger. Literally, he says, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not complete the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not complete the desires of the flesh. And if you jump down to the very last verses of that passage, verses 24 and 25 further down the page, you get a similar message. Verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, right? Put it to death, terminated with extreme spiritual prejudice. Crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, namely because the flesh was crucified with Christ. And he goes on, if we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. That phrase, guided by the Spirit, sometimes it's translated keep in step with the spirit it the sense of the word means to walk along in an orderly fashion you know like a soldier might march in rank he's saying since you live by the spirit right we've got life from the spirit we're to walk on in tandem with the spirit so getting really practical what does it look like to walk like this to be led like this by the spirit well in the middle of that passage in galatians 5 paul helps us out he has there a list, first of all, of the works of the flesh. These are the things we're crucified in coming to Jesus, the things we're to put to death in ourselves by the power of the Spirit. This is what he says. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, which means any sort of sexual relationship outside of male-female marriage. Impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions. 
envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. So it's obviously not an exhaustive list. I'm warning you, he says, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You can actually group the list a little into some sort of categories, which I think gives us a handle on what and other things like these might be, because it it gives you some categories to work with. The first three, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, are about unbridled passion and lusts that ignore the restraints God has imposed for our good. Unbridled sort of passions and lusts that ignore the restraints God's imposed upon us for our good. Idolatry and sorcery are about false worship, you know, directing worship at anything other than the one true God. So things like these, I mean, that, that's, that includes greed, I would take it, materialism, the worship of possessions. Uh, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions and factions, which is a long list, are all about destructive behaviour and attitudes in interpersonal relationships. And in drunkenness, carousing, they're about a, a loss of self-control. This is a picture of what life is like in the flesh, to walk according to the flesh. It's misdirected, it's destructive, and it's uncontrolled. And it's completely alien to life in the kingdom of God. But nevertheless, as a Christian, there may be things in that list, or similar to that list, that you need to put to death. Don't play fast and loose with your holiness. That's exactly Paul's concern here. Note how he finished the verse. I'm, I'm warning you as I've warned you before. That is, Christians need to be reminded of this stuff. Heed God's warning here. And if you need to, put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit through Spirit-prompted and empowered repentance. But then positively, Paul shows what it looks like to walk by the Spirit. By contrast... He says, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. There is no law against such things. We are so familiar with those verses, those words. Are you cultivating, though, the fruit of the Spirit in your life? It's a list that's actually worth saying slowly. I'm going to say it slowly, and I want you to jot down, if you've got a pen there, I want you to jot down, just, just between you and the Lord and that person peering over your shoulder, <laughs> just jot down, what would you give yourself as a mark out of five? Five being, yep, I'm, I'm, that's, 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 I could say that that is a, a characteristic of me, praise be to God in the power of his spirit. Right? I don't want false humility here because like, I pray God's doing great things in your life and so that some of you really are patient people. So I just want you to give yourself a mark out of five. Five being tops, one and zero and anything negative. I don't know what that means, but it's bad. <laughs> Let me read out. You jot it down. Love. Are you cultivating love? Is that characteristic of you? Love. Joy. Peace, by which he means, I think, peace with other people. Are you a person of peaceful relationships, harmonious relationships, a peacemaker? 
kindness. What about generosity? Faithfulness, faithfulness I take it to God but also to your word and other people, faithfulness. Gentleness. I heard a good description of gentleness once as strength under control for the sake of others. I like that because sometimes we think gentleness is just wussiness. It's not. Not at all. And self-control. How are you going with those fruit? Are they apparent in your life in increasing abundance? Now remember, as we saw earlier, to grow in holiness is both the Spirit's work and our work. So you can't just sit back here with respect to the fruit of the Spirit and say, okay, God, I'm convicted. I scored a negative 27 on patience. So I really need your help here and I'm willing, I'm open. Zap me. Fill me. Power me up. That I might be patient like you. I just, it just doesn't... That's just not how God works through his spirit in us. He works in and through and with us working. He's the unseen and often unfelt energy that empowers us to work. You've got to work at it. So if I want to be more patient, then I'm going to need to actually be patient. It's a spiritual fruit. It'll come, the harvest will come through discipline, hard work, training on my part, but it will be empowered all by him. You may well say, well, that just sounds like a lot of hard work, actually, what you just talked about, putting to death these things and growing in these things, and even with the parents, it just feels like a heck of a lot of work. Why would I, who could be bothered to do this? May I just say, that's why we started tonight with who we are. Remember that by grace, you are sitting here tonight, a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is working in you to transform you into the very likeness of Jesus. Which means that these fruit should be coming into abundance in your life as he transforms you into greater and greater glory. So don't grieve the Spirit. Don't dampen down his work because he's trying to prompt this fruitful growth in your life. He's trying to prompt you to put to death the misdeeds of the body. And so, so don't grieve him in your approach. I, I had one idea that was this. Maybe you should pick just one of those fruit of the Spirit. Just pick one and say, right, for this week, I'm going to work on that. In the power of the Spirit, I'm going to work on that. And then next week, pick another one. And the week after another. That'll get you through a couple of months. And then you can find other great fruit of the Spirit's work, because this is not an exhaustive list either, in the Scriptures. Or come back and just start all over again. Just keep working at it. Okay. Well, we're going to um, stop for a break in a moment. I just want a little last comment here about revival. Last night I encouraged many of us to be praying for revival and there's something we need to say here on this topic of holiness and revival. Because it's worth noting that when you look through different histories of revival, when revival comes, it usually begins 
with a revival or renewal movement inside the church, within the Christian community, before it sees lots of non-Christians coming to faith. So in both the Great Awakening Revival and the East Africa Revival, which I mentioned last night, there was a great conviction of sin within the church community. In the East Africa Revival, it showed itself actually by, by a, a remarkable sort of public confession of sin that people would just get up and publicly confess these sins and say all sorts of secret sins which they'd never told anybody because they were just so convicted. And having looked at what we've looked at tonight, I think we can start to understand why that happens. See, because the indwelling Spirit of God is not just a Spirit of life, He's also the Spirit of holiness. And when the Spirit comes, He doesn't just come and do an isolated work. He doesn't just come and make you bold for proclaiming Jesus. Because when the Spirit comes on you in power and fills you, he, he does a thoroughgoing work. He prompts and empowers you for repentance. He works to grow you in holiness. And he works to embolden you for proclaiming Jesus in scary situations. So consequently, what people have observed in revival is that it often starts with this, this just great awareness of our sin. And, and that leads people to a, a, a deeper, more joyful appreciation of all that God's done for us in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. And then that tends to, they see, just result in a more mature joy a more mature passion for God. And that then overflows in bolder mission and gospel outreach. It's all the work of the Spirit. So I just wanted to ask, before we get too gung-ho about praying for revival, um, just a little word on the side, are you really ready for Spirit-empowered revival? Because revival ain't comfortable for the believers. Do you really want to see the Holy Spirit come upon us in power? Now, of course, we think we're ready to see God work in those who are lost without Christ, but are we ready to see him work in us? We're actually eager to see him work in the lost out there, but actually are we eager to see him work in us? Do we long for that? So before we start longing and pleading with God to see him work in revival in those around us, are we longing and pleading with him to work renewal in us, in me? Can you handle what the Spirit of God might want to do in your life? What secret sins he wants you to kill off? what fruit he wants to cultivate in you, because this will mean serious work for us in repentance, in killing off the deeds of the body, in harvesting the Spirit's fruit in our life. I asked you the question, can you handle it? But, but really, I am actually hoping that you're really excited by it. I really actually hope that you're the prospect that God might come upon us in his Spirit and fill us with just a renewed sense of our need for him and our passion for him and glorying in all that he's done for us in Jesus' death and resurrection, I actually hope that excites you. It's a great thing for which to long for, to pray for, to strive for, knowing actually that it's God's desire for you. And that currently 
He's in you by his spirit to that very end. He's already here. We don't have to really ask him to come. We just have to stop quenching him. Stop grieving him. And pray that he would do his work more and more. So that's a good place to stop. And uh, that would be a great place to actually stop tonight, full stop. Uh, But there's a related hot topic that I thought it would be good to touch on tonight. It's the whole question of spiritual warfare. And it's related to the question about holiness. So stand up, stretch for a a few, few minutes, and then we're just going to come back and talk briefly about spiritual warfare. Let's talk just for a few minutes about spiritual warfare. All right. We're on page 37. The nature of our struggle, spiritual warfare. Now, spiritual warfare is a really hot topic in some Christian circles at the moment. And spiritual warfare links in with to our holiness theme because some Christians are saying some Christians are saying that the reason we don't experience freedom from particular sins as Christians may be because as Christians we have a demon influencing us internally. And if that's the case, so the argument runs, unless you deal with the demon, which means binding the demon in some sort of way and getting him, him to leave, it to leave, then there's every chance that you're going to sin again if you don't deal with the demon. And there's a fair bit of interest in what you might call then deliverance ministry at the moment. And then once you start reading about this stuff, you see there's actually quite a lot written now by Christians about demonology about how demons organise themselves geographically, how they organise themselves hierarchically, how they oppress people down through generations or through particular sins or even traumatic events. What do we make of all this from a biblical standpoint? All I'm going to do tonight in just this last little bit is just plant what I hope, what I think, what I believe to be five or six firm and sure biblical stakes in the ground. I was going to say in the heart, going like a stake through the heart, but but in the ground, to help us think through this type of counselling and ministry that is gaining some traction, it seems. So, spiritual warfare, some crucial stakes. Point zero, and it's zero for a reason, is that evil is real. 
Bible's very clear that there are real, non-material forces of evil. Look there at Ephesians 6 on your page. The classic spiritual warfare text, verse 11. Put on the whole armour of God, says Paul, so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God, so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. There is a devil, an evil one. There are spiritual forces of evil. We're told in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, might like to jot it down, 1 Peter 5, 8, discipline yourselves, keep alert, like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. And we saw on Monday night in Jesus' earthly ministry, he healed many who were oppressed by demons. And the testimony of many, both here and overseas, is that from time to time, you may meet someone who seems overwhelmed by dark spiritual forces, where you may say they seem possessed. Although possession isn't really a word the Bible uses for those under the influence of demons. It's it's come into our Christian talk, but it's not really the sort of phrase the Bible uses. Hence, talk now is often of people being demonised, of having a demon, or maybe the demon having them. That's point zero, evil is real. Point one, because I didn't want to make this point two, because that sounds less important. So I need point, this to be point one. God has triumphed over the spiritual forces of darkness in Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the crucial point of which the evil one himself would love to convince you that this is not the case. That is, at this very point in time, Jesus is Lord of all. That's what the Bible teaches. The devil is not. Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth by his Father. Matthew 28, verse 18. Which, frankly, all authority in heaven and on earth, it doesn't leave a lot for the devil to play with. God is sovereign. The devil is not. So his activity is completely hemmed in within the boundaries that God has set. And Hebrews 2.12 tells us that through Jesus' own death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, it says. See, the devil is not merely an opposed power. He's not even a struggling power. The devil is a destroyed power. Through Jesus' death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, he hasn't yet disappeared, that is still to come, but he has been thoroughly and definitely, definitively conquered. Uh, in the quote there on page 37, C.S. Lewis captures the reality in some ways of these first two points and the danger of some of this stuff. He says there, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them, 
they themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Okay, point two. In light of point one, there is no need to fear. There is no need to fear. In James 4 verse 7 we're told, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and you might just survive. No. Resist the devil and it'll be really gruesome and possibly he might be defeated. No. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He will flee from you. There's nothing to fear here. Ephesians 6 is also very positive that whilst there is a struggle, verse 12, he says there, but the word, the word used actually is... The word used there is pretty intense, like my voice. Uh, it's a word for hand-to-hand -hand combat, actually, or wrestling, our struggle. But it still leaves no doubt that if we remain strong in the Lord, it says, and the strength of his power, verse 10, wearing figuratively the armour he provides, we will be able to stand. There is no doubt about the outcome unless we ourselves choose to give way. But that leads me to um, 2A. But also there's no basis for foolish arrogance. See, both James and Ephesians 6 are clear that the strength for resisting the devil is God's strength because of what he has done in the cross of Jesus in his death and resurrection and because of what he has done or, or what he has done in you by, by owning you with his spirit. So like every aspect of our growth in holiness, it's actually by God's strength that we persevere and grow. And that's the point of verse 11 and 13 in Ephesians 6. You're to put on God's armour in order to stand firm. Um, I really, I quite like Martin Luther, Martin Luther's approach to the demonic. He was another great Protestant reformer, the 15th century. Uh, he had a suitable disdain for the devil that reflected a great confidence in our first point, the victory and salvation of Christ, but it didn't end up in an inflated pride. It was just a deep confidence in what Jesus had done and a humble grasp of who he, Luther, now was in Christ. Confidence and humility. Have a look there, page 38. He writes this. It is not a unique, unheard of thing for the devil to thump about and haunt houses. In our monastery in Wittenberg, I heard him distinctly. For when I began to lecture on the book of Psalms, and I was sitting in the refectory after we had sung matins, studying and writing my notes, the devil came and thudded three times in the storage chamber, the area behind the stove, as if dragging a bushel away. Finally, as it did not want to stop, I collected my books and went to bed. 
I, I still regret to this hour that I did not sit him out to discover what else the devil wanted to do. I also heard him once over my chamber, like his bedroom, in the monastery. But when I realised it was Satan, I rolled over and went back to sleep. <laughs> now contrast that, contrast that with what I read in one book that was written by a self-declared evangelical and who wrote this book because he thought other evangelicals made too little of the devil and his demons. Just contrast Luther with this. This guy writes, I believe God automatically grants us a certain amount of protection from enemy activity. But we do not seem to be completely protected. Why is not clear? It seems clear, though, that when we claim more protections for ourselves and those under our authority, more protection is granted. I've experimented with blessing myself with protection from disease and accident. And it seems that much of what could have happened has not. And then says, I hate to think what could have happened if I had not exercised my right to regularly claim God's protection. Let me be very clear. That is fear. That is superstition and ritualistic. It's an almost magical view. It is not Christian. It might be done in Jesus' name, but it has the character of the evil one about it because it is fearful. It is reliant on works for protection. And anecdotally, uh, anecdotally speaking with Christians who've come out of this sort of Christian engagement with the demonic, they tell me it is full of fear. I spoke to a guy in a car just the other day. He just said, oh, what are you... He's in ministry. He said, what are you working on? I said, oh, I've been thinking about spiritual warfare, reading lots of books about it. And he said, oh, yeah, I was really into that stuff. I said, right. And then he just told me the story. And I just said, so what was it like? And I, I didn't prompt. He just said, man, we were scared. We were scared. See, the very practices that supposedly are meant to keep the evil one at bay seem actually to generate fear in believers. That's not Right. And it should at least make us step back and reevaluate what's going on in this sort of prayer pastoral counselling. So three, the relentless presence of the Spirit in the believer. This claim that Christians can be demonised, that is under the pervasive and somewhat controlling internal influence of a demon and even be totally unaware of it, is a, a very messy, it's very messy. See, because of course we struggle to put off the deeds of the body. And the temptations of the evil one are very real. But the idea that Christians can be oppressed by an internal demon who needs to be expelled at the very least, it seems to fly in the face of some pretty key Bible texts. Start with 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, says John to Christians, you are from God. 
and have conquered them. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. There just doesn't seem to be much room left in that verse for the demonic to be in Christians. We're told straight up, the one who is in you, that is the Spirit of God, is greater than the one who is in the world. It matches that very clear binary distinction that we saw earlier. Christians are not in the flesh, they're in the Spirit. The one who is in you is greater and different to the one who is in the world. Or later, 1 John 5 verse 18... We know, says John, that those who are born of God do not continue in sin, but the one who was born of God protects them, and the evil one does not touch them. We know that we are God's children, and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. It very clearly says, the evil one does not touch those who are born of God. Whilst the whole world, the world outside of Jesus, lies under the power of the evil one, those born of God are his children. Seems to be a very clear and distinctive distinction. Definite distinction. So, move on. Point four. Beware giving the devil a foothold. The notion of a foothold comes from the NIV translation of Ephesians 4.27. It can can be translated just as an opportunity. Um, Yeah. Uh, What's it talking about? What's this sort of foothold or opportunity you could give the evil one in your life as a Christian? It's unrepentant sin. Unrepentant sin in the life of a Christian is a toxic hypocrisy that destroys faith. Unrepentant sin is a toxic hypocrisy that destroys faith. See, sin gives the enemy an opportunity not to invade you, not to take up residence in you, not to send a demon into you, all of which you'll read, some people say. No, sin gives the enemy an opportunity to accuse you and to tempt you further. After all, the evil one is, according to the scriptures in Revelation 12, 10, the great accuser. And when he accuses you and says, you can't really stop this sin, or that sin doesn't really matter, all those accusations are aimed at keeping you engaged in destructive, sinful behaviour and to persuade you not to repent, not to put to death the deeds of the body by the power of the Spirit. Because he knows that that sort of hypocrisy will ultimately destroy your faith. So the solution? The solution is, it's not discover if a demon has invaded your life, which is what is sometimes now being advocated. You know, find out his name. Find out if there are other demons there too. You have to identify the top demon because if you send out one of the lesser ones, it's not going to be effective. So you have to identify the top demon, speak only to the top demon, bind the others, command him to leave, call down the spirit to fill the space because if that doesn't happen, then Jesus says seven more demons will come and take over. You must also protect those around so the demon doesn't actually find another Christian around just to jump into. The biblical answer is by the Spirit. What are you to do? Put to death the deeds of the body. 
by the Spirit. Spirit-empowered repentance, that's what's required. Keep short accounts with God. Because once you indulge in temptation, it is an easy snare of the devil to encourage you to fall into that same temptation again. Don't give him that foothold for accusation and further temptation. Listen again to Martin Luther. The other quote there on your page. He says, when I go to bed, the devil is always waiting for me. And when he begins to plague me, I give him this answer. Devil, I must sleep. That's God's command. Work by day, sleep by night. So go away. And if that doesn't work and he brings out a catalogue of sins, I say, yes, old fellow, I know all about it. And I know some more that you've overlooked. Here are a few extra. Put them down. And if he still won't quit and presses me hard and accuses me as a sinner, I scorn him and say, Oh, Saint Satan, pray for me. Of course, you've never done anything wrong in your life. You are so holy. Go to God and get grace for yourself. If you want to get me all straightened out, I say, Physician, heal thyself. So finally, and we'll finish with this, what shape then ought our response to take take to spiritual attack and the spiritual forces of evil? Well, stand firm in the strength and the armour of God. Ephesians 6, the the image is, is of spiritual warfare. It's all very cosmic. It's all very exciting. But did you notice that, frankly, the armour with which we're to arm ourselves is all very pedestrian? There's no... So put the demons and the powers on trial. There's no exorcisms. There's no complex and detailed series of steps to follow on how to identify, bind, expel any demons that may be demonising somebody. The armour is all very basic Christian truth. Verse 14, truth, that is the truth of the gospel, and righteousness, that is holiness. Verse 15, proclaiming the gospel of peace with God, that is. Verse 16, faith. Verse 17, salvation, the word of God, which is described as the sword of the spirit. And we're told to pray in the spirit at all times, in every prayer, for all the saints. So I just don't see a call here to engage the demonic directly. The right response seems to be the gospel of Jesus Christ, standing firm in the things Jesus has won for us, standing firm in faith and righteousness, standing firm in our salvation in him, standing firm with the word of God, which is the truth, and to pray. Pray for God to do whatever's necessary to help this person. Pray for all our brothers and sisters in Christ that they too, armed by God, will be strong in the strength of his power and stand firm. Pray in the spirit at all times, in every prayer, for all the saints. Friends, you can have great confidence as a Christian in Christ. God has taken up residence in you by his Holy Spirit. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So you are now in the Spirit. You are not in the flesh. So put to death the deeds of the body by the power of the Spirit and cultivate the Spirit's great work in your life 
the fruit of the Spirit, so that you might be transformed into greater and greater glory of the likeness of Christ. Because you know what? That is what God wants to do with you, and that is why he has taken up residence in you, God the Great Holy One. Praise him for that.